Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 22? Going to begin with verse 63, going to extend it a rather long passage I want to read into chapter 23 and verse 25 and cover the trial of Jesus. Then talk about four things regarding the trial and how it applies to you and me and how it has applied to the church and the people of God all through the ages. So with me, let's look then. I want to bring you a message that I call the world system that killed Jesus. And the men holding him began mocking him. Having blindfolded him, they were questioning him saying, prophesy, who is the one having struck you? And blaspheming, they were saying many other things to him. And when it became day, the elderhood of the chief priests and scribes were gathered together. And they led him into their council saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. He said to them, if you tell me, you would never believe. If I tell you, you would never believe. If then I should ask you, you would never answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be sitting at the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, then you are the Son of God. And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what more need have we of witness? For we ourselves have heard it from his mouth. And all of their assembly, having risen up, led him to Pilate. Then they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding tribute to be given to Caesar, and declaring himself to be Christ, a king. And Pilate questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And answering him, he said, You say... And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I do not find guilt in this man. But they kept insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all of Judea. And he has begun from Galilee even to here. Now Pilate, having heard, asked whether the man is a Galilean. And having learned that he is from the jurisdiction of Herod, he sent him up to Herod he also being in Jerusalem in those days. And Herod, having seen Jesus, was exceedingly glad, for he had long desired to see him because of hearing about him, and he was hoping to see some miracle done by him. Then he kept questioning him in many words. However, he answered him nothing. Now the chief priests, the scribes, had been standing by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his troops, having despised him, and having mocked him, having put splendid apparel on him, sent him back to Pilate. Then both Herod and Pilate became friends with one another on that day. For previously it had been that they were at enmity between themselves. Then Pilate, having called together the chief priests and rulers and the people, said to them, You brought this man to me as misleading the people, and look. Having examined him, I find nothing in this man guilty of that accusation you are bringing against him. Not even Herod did 
for he sent him back to us. And look, nothing worthy of death is done by him. So having chastised him, I will release him. However, they all cried out together saying, away with this man, release now to us Barabbas, who had been cast into the prison on account of having made a certain insurrection in the city and murder. But again, Pilate called to them desiring to release Jesus. But they were crying out saying, crucify, crucify him. But they were urgent with loud voices asking for him to be crucified and their voices were prevailing. And Pilate decreed their demand to be done. Then he released the one having been cast into prison on account of insurrection and murder for whom they had asked. And he delivered Jesus to their will. The world system that killed Jesus. We'll look at four things here that are part of a system that date back as a, as a cultural, societal, uh, systemic uh, prevailing environment date back, in my view, to the Tower of Babel, possibly in the pre-flood world, but information from the pre-flood world is, is scant. But we do have information from the time of the Tower of Babel. The world, God had given a command that the people would, after the flood, cover the earth, replenish the earth. Now the opposite of that would be for the people to assemble themselves together and do whatever they wanted to do, which is exactly what they did. They assembled themselves. You know the story of the Tower of Babel. Babel means confusion. It is also a form of the word that became the city Babylon. So when we study the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and then what follows on into Genesis 11, we see that there was a, essentially a worldwide rebellion against the word of God, the command of God, God's design, God's purpose, God's will. There was a leader whose name was Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, the Bible says. And taking the, taking the language and the, and the entire context, you, you understand that Nimrod was their leader. And the people were challenged and called out to make for themselves um, brick and mortar with their hands. And let us make to ourselves our own, our own God or make ourselves gods. Make ourselves our own deity. We will create our own deity and we will build our way to heaven. So instead of using the God-made materials like stone and so forth, they used man-made material, brick and mortar. They began to build uh, an ancient tower that to their mind would eventually reach into heaven. They could scale that thing and with their own religion and with the power of their own hands and their minds working together as one, they could accomplish their task. Now the Godhead said, 
We need to do something. We're going to have to confuse their tongues lest they become as we are. So, and it shows you the, the power of the project that was underway. God, of course, then confounded the languages and there was confusion that set in. And then comes the, the birth of nations as they're, as they're given to us in that context. The birth of the, 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 the nations described and named and then we're told why nations became nations, why they separated into various nations and peoples. So the project there failed. But the Bible says something that's interesting. It says the beginning of his kingdom was at Babel, Babel, Babel. Did you know the system that, is, that was established and that ran rampant among mankind and that was undoubtedly carried from the Tower of Babel, these ideas of humanism and man-made gods and so forth, building our way, working our way to heaven apart from God, the, uh, to totally ignore the, the will and command and, and word of God. That, that mindset, that worldview followed surely in the hearts of people because it's seen in history and it's seen, of course, in the rest of the Bible, except for the elect whom God called to himself. Because right after Genesis 11 is Genesis 12 and God calls Abram to himself. And then, of course, Abram, Abraham, became the progenitor of the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, you don't see the end of this system. The, the, the beginning of his kingdom was at Babel. Babel. You don't see it. it. It what was created in the minds of men, the self-purpose and self-will of man, the desire to create deities from within the thoughts and heart of man apart from God, the true and living God, to deny the purpose and to reject the will of God and to reject his word and so forth and to reject his command. All of this was developed and that, that culture, that mindset, that worldview, that system that I call Babylon is not stopped. It goes from there and it enters into the other nations of the world except the one that God separated to himself. Now, we don't see an end to Babylon until the end of the Bible in the book of the Revelation. Now, I'll talk more about that in just a minute. But here's my point. There were, there were, you can look at the Deuteronomic law you can read the, the, the legal traditions and developments of the Jews that existed in the day of Jesus. And they were based on what was said in Deuteronomy. And you can really find that the Jewish legal system in Christ's day, as a matter of fact, all during the history of the Jews, was a very fair and wonderful legal system. Um, Yet none of this legal system was followed by the leaders of the people here. They totally cast aside their rules, their constitution, if you will, the Deuteronomic laws that were in the Old Testament, Law of Moses. All of those things were cast aside. 
And this whole thing was rushed and slammed together by the enemies of Jesus. And we see four things that are at play here that have always been at play against the people of God that have developed from the world system. And we have to remember these things and we have to be wise in this world when we develop and as we continually develop our biblical worldview to, to understand that the world has always been arrayed against the will of God, the word of God, the purpose of God, and the people of God always have been arrayed against us. And they make rules and policies and laws outside the Bible. And generally speaking, those, those laws that are developed among nations, and we read this in Romans 13, generally they are for the, the betterment of society. They are there to help us live lives of peace. And we're mandated in Romans 13 uh, to live gentle and peaceful lives. And as far as we can, be in obedience to the law of men. But we're also to understand this. If God is sovereign in our heart, if we absolutely believe the word of God and do everything we can in our hearts and in our power, to obey the word of God and to walk humbly before our God in our lives, we will clash with this world system. They will necessarily come against us because the world system in our hearts is not sovereign over us, cannot displace God and only God through his Christ can save us. And there's no other way. So at least one of these four will come against us. And at the close of the age, and I'll get back to that, at the, at the end of the message here, at the close of the age, they all converge against the will, purpose, and people of God. So let's think about what just happened here. In, in, in diametrically opposing the Deuteronomic law and the Jewish law and the Jewish system, legal system, with which they all would have been familiar, these people who were dragging Jesus through these courts, these kangaroo courts, would have all been aware of how they were violating their very law, their very constitution, if you will. The legal policies that had stood good among their people because their people were supposed to be good and righteous and equitable, and they were to demonstrate justice for one another. None of the things that occur here were legal in their system. So the whole thing is illegal. They were not to have court at night. They started this thing at night. They were supposed to have two or three witnesses that to begin with. They had none. They had to hire some later on. They didn't, they didn't allow for the defense of the accused according to their system. He was just on his own. Um, and they were, if someone was condemned to death, they were not to, they were not to immediately carry out the execution. They were to wait another day to see if other evidence came to light that proved the person innocent. And then he was to be executed the third day. And not only that, they were never to allow into evidence a person's confession of guilt. And the only thing they have here is what Jesus said. They said, we've heard enough. We've heard enough. We've heard him. And he didn't really say what they were wanting him 
to say. But they just extracted what they wanted to out of it and brought Jesus now to trial and then to crucifixion. In some ways, and we have to be strengthened in our lives and it has to be part of our prayer lives and our discipline, our personal discipline in all of our lives to understand that these things that come at us from the world system at the heart of who they are and at the root of who they are, sooner or later, at least one, if not all of them, or a combination of them, will seek to condemn us in our faith and to cause, and to cause our loss or even persecution. It's always been that way. So let's consider the things that we've studied in Luke up to now the court, the, 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 the court sessions that have been going on here and how it all comes together and what it says to you and me and how it all comes together at the end of the, at the, end of the age. First of all, the first characteristic of the world system that will cause the world to come against us is the economic system. Let's consider the day of Jesus. First of all, there were Pharisees here. We've seen in the greater context of the last week or so of Christ's life leading to this time of crucifixion. The Sadducees were there questioning him and seeking to conspiring with others that they didn't really agree with in any other way to put Jesus to death. The high priests were always members of the Sadducees. Now the Sadducees didn't believe really in anything. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in, uh, they didn't believe in angels. Uh, they, were, they were beyond liberal. They were practical atheists, if you will. But they controlled the biggest portion of the economy of the Jews. The high priests, for example, what Christ did when he cast out the money changers was to interrupt a, a, a scheme that had been going on in which the Sadducees had their fingers and over which the high priest would rule that extracted money from the Jews that came from all over the world. This was, this was a phenomenal amount of money, of income that came into the pockets of these people, the Sadducees, the high priests, and most of the chief priests. Now the chief priests in the Old Testament, chief priest and the high priest was the same, but in the New Testament it was a little bit different. Uh, chief priests were assistants and associates to the, to the high priest. And most of them historically belonged to the party of the Sadducees and they were all about money. This whole thing was how can we extract money from these poor, ignorant people. If something comes along, even Jesus Christ, the son of God comes along and interrupts this flow of money and threatens that economic system. Whoever it is that leads that thing has to die and they will spend their fortunes and their time and they will conspire with people whom they otherwise despise 
so that together they may somehow come together and put an end to this awful invasion of their economic well-being. As a matter of fact, we studied not just the Sadducees, but the Pharisees. In Luke 16, I'm sure you'll remember when we were there, Jesus said, the Pharisees are lovers of money. Now, the Pharisees had established for themselves, which leads me to the second thing here, um, religious, a false religious system. If you preach sovereign grace and that only Jesus can save you, the world will hate you. They can't stand to hear that. There's bound to be another way and I can choose my way and it's mostly up to me, if not all of it up to me. That's how the world is and they, they'll despise any other kind of preaching or teaching, of course, which is the biblical way, the biblical uh, way of, of, of theologically presenting the Christ of God and the salvation of God in his Christ. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand Christ because he was preaching against their works salvation. They not only at, tried to adhere to the law of Moses, but they equally, they placed on equal ground the oral tradition of the Jews. Now, Jesus came against that because the oral tradition was not the word of God. This was the will of man. And by creating this oral tradition, this group that finally came known as the Pharisees would have some sort of upper hand over people. They had to have the chief seats whenever they walked in. Whenever there was a dinner party, they had to, give, they had to be given the best uh, chair in the house. People would have to bow and get out of the way when they were walking down uh, a highway or a sidewalk. So they were arrogant and filled with pride and they used religion as a club to beat people over the head with and they maintained for themselves by their so-called profession and by the way that they dressed, they maintained for themselves an elitist position among the rest of the people. Jesus Christ came against this. You see, you cannot save yourself. There is not one act or, or, or behavior. There's nothing in you. You don't have the power. You don't have the thought. You don't have the imagination of anything to do anything or even say anything that can save you. It is all by the grace of God. You must be born again. You're dead in trespass and sin. How am I going to move from death to rebirth? By the power of God. That's how. Only God can do that. I can't order myself to be reborn or to be saved. Now, the religious world hates that. Christians today are called hate mongers because we have to hold on to what we're taught in the scriptures. There is only one way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's the only way people can be saved. And it's such a wonderful thing. You, Christ comes into your heart by faith. And even faith is a gift from God, the Bible teaches us. We can't have faith unless God gives us the faith. And that rubs against people. Oh, man. You mean I have no power in this thing at all? No. It's all of God and none of you. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a very powerful statement in the Greek text. Not of yourself. No, not 
It's not of yourselves. It has nothing to do with you. It has all to do with God. The Pharisees couldn't stand it. Man, you remember the parable Christ taught of the publican and the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee. Poor old tax collector collapsed before God with a life of horrible sin. And all he could see, all he could see was his sin. And all he could think of was his need for the mercy seat. Have mercy on me. Be mercy seated to me, the sinner. Publican wasn't thinking about anybody else but himself and his sin. And he came humbly and stricken before God. The proud Pharisee stood and beat himself on the chest. I thank you that I'm not like this old nasty publican. Jesus said only one of those prayers was heard by God. And it was the prayer of the tax gatherer, the publican. The poor repentant sinner who knew he had done wrong and confessed it and begged for mercy. Pharisees couldn't stand that. They had to get rid of this guy because they would lose their, their, they would lose their position of elitism among the people. And they also would lose a special way to gain a source of income through the people. So the second part of this world system that killed Jesus is religious. The third one, of course, is political. So they bring the councils together, the council together, the Sanhedrin. They bring the, the chief priests, the scribes, then mixed in there all along with the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But the council and the Sadducees especially, the Sadducees had a political agreement with Rome. So they knew they would have to bring the right kinds of charges against Jesus and bring those charges unanimously to Pilate, which is what they did. Now Rome was the political power of the world, but then there were these local political powers that were religious in nature, I suppose you could say, the chief priests, the council of the Sanhedrin, and so forth. And they carried influence because of their connection with the people. They carried influence with all of the people there. Now you're thinking in the time of the Passover and, and the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jews from around the world. So, you know, it did, even, even, even the Roman legion that was there was outnumbered by the people. You had to, you had to walk on... You had to walk carefully here through this kind of situation. Well, Pilate didn't get to be where he was by being non-political. He was a political guy. These religious leaders, unfortunately, didn't get to their positions in their religion without being political. And all of this political and religious power brought economic power into the pockets of these people. So they're losing Status, they're losing influence, but above all, they're losing money. They have to put a stop to it. Now, Pilate listens to what they say. He knows them and he says, look, this guy hadn't done anything wrong. And you, you saw the, the account, it sends him to Herod. Herod says, he doesn't leave, leave me alone, he's... He's worthless to me and done anything wrong. But then finally, the Bible says here that the voices of the people were prevailing. The people, the multitudes. By now it's daytime. This whole thing started 
when the night before, it was right after the Lord's Supper, and they retreated to out from, from the Lord's Supper time, they retreated out to the uh, Mount of Olives. Then they came to rest. You remember, I hope, the account that we've looked at. And Christ is with them being mistreated terribly. And the leaders of the Jews are bound and determined to have Christ put to death. Now you understand it's Friday now. The sun has come up and it's Friday. So finally, the political leaders, they're not going to listen to anybody who's in favor of Jesus. This has already been predetermined. This whole thing is fixed because in the middle of the night, the chief, pre, the, the chief priests and the high priest and all the Sanhedrin, they could control the crowd who would be admitted into the, into the court, into the court hearing. They maintained careful control all the way through. And obviously they found allies, people willing to go along with them, the religious and, and the political leadership of the Jews, to scream and make a big noise. You know, there's an old saying that says the squeakiest axle gets the most grease. We see it today. The noisiest people seem to get the ear of the politicians even though they're wrong. Because upstanding people could not picture themselves as screaming and cursing and and doing all these things that people do, these wearing these awful outfits uh, that they wear and, and have these weird ideas. And yet, they're the ones who are making all the noise. This is the way it was. So that leads me, that leads me to the fourth and final thing of this uh, world system that killed Jesus, the apostates. I'm sure a lot of those people were there all excited and carrying on when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday. But by now, because, because Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do, Jesus is going along with the word of God and the will of the Father, not the will of man. Then the will of man, although in his, in his life at some point warms up maybe to the thoughts of what he thinks Jesus ought to do will turn on Jesus when he realizes that Jesus cannot be manipulated, that there is a plan and a purpose of God that calls all people before God finally and ultimately into judgment. And people don't like that. They don't like to think you have to give an account for who you are. You, you're yourself. You can do what you want to do. You are an island. And, and those of us otherwise have recognized ourselves as depraved sinners, no good, unworthy, and with the only hope of Christ that there's nothing good in us. We don't have a good thing to present to God in judgment. There's nothing there. We're just going to have to believe and have faith and be covered in the righteousness of Christ. So that when he looks on us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And thus we're saved. 
But you know, there are a whole lot of people who don't want that. They'll start out well, like on Palm Sunday, but when they realize that they cannot manipulate Jesus into the will of man, they turn on him. Now, those are the four elements, characteristics of the world system that killed Jesus. Of course, this is all in keeping with the will of the Father and with the prophecies that were made. And so this should give us at least some kind of comfort. We should live the lives of Christians and be obedient and stay upon the Word of God and continue to learn it. And the more we learn it, the more we are exposed to the, the faults and flaws of the world system that naturally at some point in time must despise Christ because salvation is not found in the nations of men. It's not found really in the will of man. It's found in the purpose of God in Christ Jesus. He died to save us. He lives to keep us. And he's coming again for us. So we have to be aware of how these things can conspire. And they don't even realize it. They are blind slaves of Satan. Before we are born again, we are slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. We're enslaved in sin. Slaves, we can't help ourselves. It's who we are. Until by grace God intervenes and causes us, as Peter says, causes us to be born again. And now we've come out of darkness and into light. And light exposes what is in the darkness. We learn more about it. And we grow stronger. And we grow more mature in the faith. And hopefully, please God, we walk closer with Christ as we go. Recognizing more and more how terrible we are and how great God is. Thus we are moved to gratitude and we are moved to worship. Worship the one who saved us? Who intervened in our life? Why? Why did he choose me? I don't know. I, we will spend into the ages of the ages asking the question. And we've been given this great commission, this challenge to take the gospel into the world. Paul said, what I do, I do for the sake of the elect. Who are the elect? I don't know who they are. You know, Spurgeon said, if God had painted a yellow stripe up their back, we could run around snatching up the shirt tails to see who the elect are and who they are. We don't know who they are. We had to preach to all of them. And the beauty and the glory of God's power to save is that when we preach to a congregation of lost people and some of them are saved, we can see the power of God. It wasn't the power of man, the power of God. Why weren't they all? It's the power of God. It's the grace of God. But the beauty of the doctrine is simply this. We'll always have success. What I do, I do for the sake of the elect. How do we know we're going to have success? Because we haven't been caught up yet. We haven't been carried away. God is still using us to save people as he speaks and proclaims through us. And his Holy Spirit then comes and rests on those whom he would call to himself. And they're saved. Now what comes against that? The world comes against it. 
the world comes against it. They'll, 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 they'll cut off your influence. They'll cut off your money. They'll cut off your politics. They'll, they'll cut you away from other people who have a greater voice who seem to be Christian, but they are agreeing with the world more than we can because we must follow the word of God. We cannot compromise. They've already compromised. It doesn't seem to bother them. So I told, I, I told you I would close with how this applies all the way through life, even to the end of the age. You get into the Revelation chapters 14 through 18, and you find the destruction of Babylon, finally. This world system that infects every nation in every age. Babylon, the great, is fallen. Fallen. Now let me just sort of summarize all that. There are two Babylons that are, that are mentioned here in the Revelation 14. And we can see through history how they developed. They both developed there at Babel. Mystery Babylon is the religious Babylon. There are places in this world you can go and just stand up and say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus Christ, and he's the only way you can be saved. You get your head cut off. You'll get killed. You'll get ostracized at, at least. And all you want is to see people to enjoy the same wonderful heaven and eternal life that you're going to have. So, it starts with mystery of Babylon. There's, there's the prostitute who rides on the beast and, and this prostitute, whoredom in the Bible, I think is always pictured as spiritual whoredom. People committing prostitution against the creator. They want somebody else. They don't want God. So this woman, this prostitute is seen riding the beast and has all these colors that connect her with the world. And that Babylon begins to fall and fail under the power of God's judgment and wrath in those seven years. And then finally, Babylon the Great, the economic, social, political world begins to collapse. And what happens? The merchants begin to cry and carry on. The kings of the world begin to weep and all the people start to wail and carry on because their system is failing. And then finally it collapses in a great collapse. That's at the end of the Revelation 18. And what happens in the Revelation 19? Jesus comes back on a white horse with all of his saints and angels. And with the destruction of mystery Babylon and Babylon the Great, the world system, that system that put him to death, he tramples it down, defeats it, and establishes his perfect rule in his kingdom. The world system that killed Jesus W.A. Criswell once said, you know, a man is not always known by the friends he makes. Sometimes he's known by the enemies he makes. And if everyone is your friend, then something is wrong with your faith. Think about that. 
The world system that killed Jesus. We just have to settle our minds. If we study God's word and try to live in it. And fearlessly proclaim it and teach it to people. As we have been mandated to do. Along the way the world will hate us. Might even try to kill us. Might even kill us. Might even kill us. We have to resolve ourselves to that. But you see, the sto- of course, the story doesn't end there. Because we're ushered into the presence of Christ. And in some kind of intermediate state before the resurrection, we behold the glory and the beauty of eternal life as it's been granted to us in Christ. So are you ready to take on the world system? Jesus said, if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. Because the disciple is not better than his master. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. If you will admit that you are a sinner, if you will believe in Jesus, the Christ of God, to be your Savior, and in confession of sin, call on Him to save you. God will save you. And He'll put you on a path of of growth and maturity in the faith so that you can learn how to deal with life and all that life throws at us. In the act of standing, if you would come to Christ today and make that public profession, in the act of standing, you come. If you're here and God leads you into this congregation, you want to come and bring your church membership here, already having been saved, we'll take care of all the details. That's what God wants in your life. Father God in heaven, speak to our hearts now as only you can do and bless us here in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing.